Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to Coming Clean with your host, Benji Backer. Today, we have an amazing special guest, uh, Jesse Diggins, one of my great friends. But before we get to that, uh, some really important news of the day that we want to cover this week. And I have a guest to bring on before Jesse to talk about that. And that's my friend, Lucy Biggers. And Lucy is an incredible asset in the climate space and has been for many years. And I'll let her introduce herself. Uh, But I'm really excited to talk about a very important topic this week, uh, which is that train derailment in Ohio. Before we get to that, uh, Lucy, welcome to the show. And it's great to have you here. Thanks, Benji. Uh, When I heard you're making this podcast, just the mission of, you know, bridging the polarized political divide in this country and finding solutions. I was like, I gotta, I gotta be involved. I gotta jump on. So I'm, thanks for having me on. And I think we both, um, you know, share a passion for finding solutions in common ground, um, for background quickly, before we get into the news of the week, I was a sustainability producer and reporter. And now this for seven years, I've built up a big Instagram following on there. Um, and since that time of sort of being on the super left, progressive um, climate activism space. I've moved a little bit toward the center um, and I'm really looking to, you know, move forward and think about the environmental movement from every angle and not rule anything out. And that's why I loved connecting with you. We became fast friends because we kind of come from different backgrounds, but we share um, the same values. And so this is like a cool, you know, space to jump into what people are thinking about. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, you know, before we jump in, I, I, I think it's actually very pertinent to talk about that right now because, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene today, you know, was threatening or saying that we should be thinking about rece- or seceding from each other as as a, as a nation. Um, you know, there's been lots of partisan attacks about the train derailment in itself. I mean, this is a very yeah, it, it's a very perfect time, unfortunately, to be having this conversation, which is like, how do we handle these situations going forward? And 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 what are we doing wrong to 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 allow these things to continue to happen in the United States, a country where, you know, we shouldn't be talking about secession. We shouldn't be talking about, you know, how we're handling toxic pollution in the atmosphere and in people's water and, and air that they're breathing day to day. I see that all kind of combined because we're, we seem to be heading in a direction that is a little bit scary in many ways. And that's brought you to this conversation in a way that you hadn't seen before. So to, to to dive into the train derailment, you know, in Colorado or in, in Colorado, in Ohio, what what were your initial thoughts and what have you seen since then that, that makes you feel like we're not heading in the right direction or maybe we are? Yeah, I think, you know, a, a week ago now, I think all of a sudden we're seeing a ton of social media posts. And if you didn't know, obviously there was a train derailment in Ohio by this company, Norfolk Southern. There was toxic chemicals on there that led to a an explosion that was visually absolutely insane to to yeah. see and at the looked same time doomsday-esque. so doomsday it looked like it looked fake it looked cgi at the same time there there was no media coverage so it happened february 3rd and even i was looking and researching this like when did the first you know real mainstream media national coverage happened and it took several days like i want to say like five or six days oh, yeah. i had people messaging me on instagram being like i don't know you're in media like make sure someone covers this and like i think you know we have to see everything now through this like political lens right and so because there wasn't a political target or it wasn't happening in a certain kind of community i feel like because our 
mainstream uh, news is so, you know, adamant about getting those clicks from their base, it didn't hit any of those notes. So nobody covered it. That's, that's my like immediate take. Um, and I also think that it was just so visual. It was built for social media and, um, then looking into the fact that like the government government like cleared it and was like, oh, you can go back. And then people are like, I don't feel safe. I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of things going on. But what was your initial take? Well, I think the thread, I think there's a few threads there. First of all, the visual side of it is really important because obviously this is a really bad situation. And it's something that probably there's going to be probably months and maybe years of investigation as to what happened, why it happened and so on and so forth. Uh, and what could we, what could have been done differently, <clears throat> but there are these sorts of horrible environmental disasters every single day that right. just aren't as visual. And I think at, it, it comes to this point where we're looking for that, that quick hit mentality on social media all the time. And this, this fit that perfectly. Yeah. And we have to get out of that mindset and pay attention to more than just these like doomsday esque scenarios that we see visually, because sometimes what looks the worst isn't even the worst thing that's happening. I'm not saying it wasn't bad. Yeah. It was really bad, but so that was one thread. The second is how convoluted the response has been, which I think speaks to how complicated environmental issues are that people don't realize this right. happened in a specific town, which is managed by its own government. That government, also has a county government within its own state. Then there's also the state government, and then there's the federal government with all the different agencies. And everyone's looking for answers and no one knows who to look to because the jurisdiction of who presides over what the solution is or what should have happened is not clear. We don't know, like that's why the Biden administration denied some of the the funding to go back into there is because they're like, this is a state thing. And, you know, there's so many different ways to respond to these environmental disasters or to prevent environmental disasters that involve so many overlapping governments. And I think that that's part of the problem here. Yeah. And I think, you know, people got, I almost feel like I weirdly I'm defending sort of the mainstream because I feel like it looked so bad that I think everyone got really scared. But then as I've been researching it and like, maybe this makes me like a normie, I was like, okay, like, yes, there were chemicals that were spilled specifically. It was vinyl chloride, which is a colorless glass. It's a, a ingredient that goes into making PVC plastic resin. Hmm. And they had to burn it off because if they did not burn it off, they thought it was going to lead to an explosion. So you lead to this visual thing that we're talking about that's doomsday. In the immediate vicinity, there were pollutants that leaked and there were animals that died. And I think there was a little bit of a lack of coverage of that and taking it seriously. But I'm seeing people being like, this is America's Hiroshima and like, this is the next thing. And I'm like, honestly, like from what I understand, and, and I will be the first to say I'm wrong if more information comes out. I think it's really bad in the short term, but I don't know if there's going to be like really long term thing. Like, right. yeah, if I was living there, I probably wouldn't drink the water from my well for like a few months and drink bottled water. And that sucks. And the government should back you up for that. But like, I don't know when I was doing this, I'm like, I want to be the one who's like, yeah, like stick it to the man. Right. Like, like it's, it's because the train tracks are like in disrepair. And then I looked it up. I'm like, okay, actually train track accidents are down by a lot since 2003. And like, you know, it, the super PAC that donates to Norfolk Southern, the company, it's 50-50 Republican Democrat. So I'm like, wait, there's like not really like anyone to blame. Well, what's really great is that everyone's blaming whoever they want to blame. Like it's being used as a partisan attack so unnecessarily because it's so visual, it's emotionally invigorating, and it's allowing people to make political points right. on TV and say, 
Yeah, have Republicans say, I, I haven't heard Greta or anyone say anything about this and, and Democrats saying, you know, the Republicans are the reason that this happened <laughs> and all this stuff. And it's just so frustrating. Well, our public discourse is so broken that we want to we we consume news and we talk about everything through these political lenses. And and that's the only way we want to talk about anything like we can't just be like, OK, what are the facts? And I think in a lot of ways the way that these bigger media companies were covering it was kind of straight to the facts. And then like people on social media wanted to twist it. They're like, right. no, 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 there's a cover up, da, da, da. And, you know, like you said, which I think is such a salient point. It's like there are environmental disasters every single day. And I feel like we only really hear about the ones that are oil spills because that, you know, fulfills a certain very visual. agenda and it's, and it's um, very visual, but like, it is interesting also in this time where we have like carbon emissions, tunnel vision to be talking about an old school like kind of run of the mill like you know environmental issue that like in the end of the day it's going to be cleaned up and people will play and i hope everyone in that community like is not you know going to suffer long-term health impacts not trying to diminish what they're going to experience and like for them it right. is real like for them it is a really big disaster and i my heart goes out to that small community in ohio but at the same time in our online world do, does me sitting in new york having a conniption about this and crying about it like, i don't think it's necessarily like the best use of time other than like just hoping that it gets cleaned up and the right people get held responsible. I feel like if, if everyone's hearing me for the first time, they're like, who is this basic girl? <laughs> like, well, no, but you're so right. I mean, my, it, it's, it, it, it might sound basic or normy, but it's so, it's so important that people hear this because it's, it's this balanced approach. It's not as fulfilling as it would be to just say, this is the worst thing that's happened in American history. Right. You know, we have to fight back. Like that is so much easier to pay attention to and so much more compelling, but the, like we have all these problems, like you said, all the time. And like, I mean, my girlfriend works in construction in New York City and, and, and she oversees some of the like pollution that humans put under the ground that are so toxic that would kill humans if they breathed it for like, you know, a, a millisecond sometimes. And it's been down there for, you know, about a century since the Industrial Revolution. And there are those things that are happening, you know, that's underneath the yeah. ground that people are living on every single day. But we don't hear about that. It's not as visual. It's pretty boring. And I think even carbon emissions can sometimes fall into that. You know, carbon emissions are you can't see them. You can't feel them in a way that you can see this smoke, you know, burrowing in East Palestine, Ohio. So I think we have to we have to be thinking about the long term of this. We have to be realistic about people trying to drum up attention over it pay attention to what we should be doing differently going forward, right. but also know that there are sometimes bigger fish to fry than what is on social media. It's about to be like, well, the fish were fried. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's too soon. <laughs> Sorry. Too soon. Um, wait, but also, okay. My, my question for you, cause I, I know we got to go, you got to go to your interview, but if you could, and you had a magic wand and you could go back and from the moment that that explosion happened, this accident happened, what would you think? have done differently, whether it's the media response or the government response, like how could it have been handled better? So that didn't lead to like this reaction. I think the media didn't cover it for a while. And I'm not sure why that's going to have to be, yeah, that's going to have to come out at some point. I would have loved the media to come out and say this happened, right? but simultaneously the people who follow the media to say, okay, this looks really bad. Let's wait for the details. And if we don't get details, let's push for them, but let's wait for them before we jump to all these conclusions. But I think that's asking too much for the world. <laughs> Yeah. And I think it's just a wait and see moment. Like I, I've just taught myself over the years of being living life online is like, you have to just take a deep breath before you react. And I think, um, this is a situation that got people really worked up. And I also do think I'm not trying to belittle it in the end of the day, but no, you know, 
And a lot of details haven't been uncovered yet, but it's important for us to not jump to assumptions before they get uncovered, before they get uncovered and to make sure that our sources that are saying certain things are, are actually backed up by reality. So Lucy, thank you so much for jumping on. I I hope to have you back soon to talk about other issues of the day. I think that will happen. Hint, hint. And, uh, I want to, I'm going to come off more edgy. (laughs) The the more episodes, the edgier. That's the plan. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I have spicy opinions. You get ready. (laughs) More fish for fried jokes. All right, Lucy, thank you so much. All and right. and now we will go to our incredible interview with Jesse Diggins, which is providing a lot of hope for our conversation around climate and the environment going forward. And we'll roll to that soon. Welcome back to Coming Clean. I'm your host, Benji Backer, and I am so honored today to have joining the show one of my favorite people in the world and, a, and truly a pioneer in her space, Jesse Diggins. Uh, I met Jesse last year at a event that ACDC held with Protect Our Winters, uh, actually a really cool event that was held at Arcteryx um, in D.C., where Jesse was spending the week lobbying Congress to fight climate change. But Jesse's not a lobbyist. She's a decorated Olympian, uh, an American hero, uh, and a cross-country ski legend uh, who just believes that the planet is worth protecting and that her voice is worth having at the table. And it's just one of those things that's incredibly inspiring. So before I get too much into that, I want to welcome Jesse to the show and really appreciate you being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is really fun to talk about. It is really fun to talk about. And before we get into the nitty gritty of climate change, I want you to tell listeners where you're at and, and what the last couple of weeks have been like for you, because you've been on the road and, and doing some pretty cool things. Yeah. So uh, I raced the World Cup circuit, which for those of you who aren't familiar with cross-country skiing, um, the World Cup is basically the highest level of racing that there is in the world, and hence the World Cup. So now I sound redundant, but um, we basically race in a different country every week. We race usually Saturday, Sunday, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday we go to the next country and we do it all over again. So been racing since late November. So I've been on the road for about two months now, um, oh living out of a duffel bag in Europe. At the moment, we're traveling. Um, we're, we're getting ready for the World Championships, which are going to be in Planica, Slovenia in um two weeks it's coming up really soon wow and so we're training in obertiliak right now which is in austria and it's gorgeous we're living in this big old hotel that we think was built in the mid 1600s and uh you can ski right out the door and we have amazing training opportunities here so everyone's just kind of um creating a nice little like team bubble where we're having team movie nights and team game nights and training super, super hard um, and just getting all psyched up for world champs. And did I see that there's some cabin or treehouse, or is that where you are right now in the middle of the kind of the, the woods? Yeah. We went and explored a deer stand that was like an actual treehouse. It was like 35 feet off the ground, um, but we were trying to get a, a good view. Of it looked like a pretty story. luxurious deer stand. Yeah, it was insulated. It was really nice. <laughs> that is so cool. Well, you've been on the road for two months and living out of a duffel bag and and working incredibly hard. Um, but this is something that you're used to. And yet you find a lot of time to invest in 
you know, advocating for the environment as well as other things. I mean, you are a leader in in getting young women into um, into sports and having them have more opportunities and and really you know that side of things. But on the climate and environmental side, I would love for you to tell your environmental origin story and kind of like why you grew up loving this planet so much and what made you feel so passionate about it. Um, and, and you obviously spend so much time in it. So hearing that story would be amazing. Yeah. Well, so I grew up in Afton, Minnesota and my parents love the outdoors. So I grew up just really appreciating all four seasons, which are all super different. And in the summer we would go on these long, like backcountry canoe trips and then we'd be camping and hiking and fishing and then in the fall um we were still hiking around the trails and then in the winter cross-country skiing was what we did as a family so I pretty much grew up on skis um before I could walk I was in my parents backpack and that was what we did every weekend as a family and then in the spring it was just working out in the garden with my mom, planting things, seeing things grow, just having a big appreciation for being outside and nature and how beautiful it is um, to be outside. So yeah, I just grew up spending so much time outdoors. That was my playground. And so I've always had a big appreciation um, for nature. But when I got into cross-country skiing on the high school team, that's when we started having winters that were, you know, multiple winters in a row that were very different from what I remembered growing up. We used to be able to usually go sledding down the driveway, um, you know, in the winter regularly. And all of a sudden we were having to drive to tiny man-made snow loops at the base of Alpine mountains in order to go do our races and train it all. Um, and so I think my senior year, literally every single high school meet was held on man-made snow um, mm. on courses that we were so fortunate to be on, but not your typical cross-country skiing course because it was up alpine slopes. And so I think it just kind of made me realize like, wow, this is like, I've always heard about climate change. I believed it. I trusted the science, but I always kind of thought, oh, it's kind of abstract. Like, hey, I don't, it doesn't, it's not like hitting home. It's not hitting mm. me in my sport. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I am very personally affected by this, which sounds super selfish, but I think for a lot of people, all of a sudden you have these crazy weather patterns and natural disasters that are happening really close together and affecting their lives. And it brings it home in a way that just hearing about it or see, reading the news mm -hmm. or hearing about a study, like that doesn't bring it home the same way as if you're like, wow, I can't do this thing I love to do. And I'm really scared that, you know, my grandkids will never be able to go sledding because we didn't do what we could when we had the chance. So that's kind of how I decided to get more involved. Mm -hmm. And then after the 2018 Olympics, um, I won a gold medal with Keegan and we got a lot of press because it was the first gold medal, um, for our sport in the history of the U S. So I kind of was in the situation where I was like, Whoa, like I have this platform that I didn't ever anticipate having. Um, I feel like I need to do something that really matters, um, and use my voice in a really meaningful way where, you know, if I never win another ski race again, at least I know I did something when it mattered with the time that I had. And so that's when I joined protect our winners and went on my first lobbying trip. Um, and that was a really empowering experience, to be honest. It was very cool because I think I grew up 
often hearing the narrative like, oh, you know, you say you care about climate, but you fly over to Europe to race. So you can't say anything or like, you know, you fly over here to go to a wedding, you fly over there for work. But everyone I know is plugged into the grid. You know, we're all in this world that requires us to travel for various reasons. So I think one of the biggest hurdles I had to get over was feeling intimidated about speaking up about climate because I felt like, um, no, I I do care about this and no, I'm not perfect. I'm working on it, but I recycle, I reuse, like I travel around with a water bottle. I do the little things that I can and I try to minimize my travel wherever I can, but that doesn't, just because I'm not perfect doesn't mean I'm not allowed to care and I'm not allowed to try to lobby for bigger policy changes that will really shift the needle. So I think it was definitely a learning curve for me to figure out how to get over that. Well, a couple of things in that. First of all, I, I was listening to a Bill Gates interview a couple of weeks ago, or a couple, sorry, a couple of days ago that I think he might have done a couple of weeks ago. And he was asked, you know, how can you um, say that you're pro climate while flying around on a private jet? I think it was BBC or someone asked him that. And the reality is that it, this is such a complex issue that tra- our travel alone is not going to dictate the outcome of it. And and it's about using your platform and using your voice and using your, you know, uh, your, your time for change. And yeah, you, you have to, we have to live in the world that we live in, right? Like not that that's, you know, n- almost zero people have access to a private jet, but, you know, he, he's literally spending billions of dollars to work on this issue. And he travels to conferences and that sort of thing. And people could argue that maybe he shouldn't do it in a private jet, but like, he's going to have to travel to it. Just like you're going to have to travel to your things. And I'm going to have to travel to my things and people are going to travel to see their families. And, you know, those are the sorts of realities that we live in. And that doesn't mean that we should be shamed for that. But I want to go back to the, uh, the discussion that you were talking about really with, with growing up in the Midwest and as another person who grew up in the Midwest in Wisconsin, which, uh, you know, is very similar to Minnesota in very many ways. Um, there's something about the forest and, uh, just the North woods of this country that is so undervalued in Minnesota and in Wisconsin and, and even in the upper peninsula of Michigan, um, not really much in the lower peninsula. I'm just kidding, but there's, there's a lot of opportunity for people to, to see the impacts of climate change in their day-to-day lives now, like you were talking about. And I think in the Midwest, it's actually maybe one of the most obvious, uh, I think back to a conversation my grandparents and I had a few years ago where it was starting to click with them that climate change was happening because the snow line in Wisconsin was moving further and further north every single year and the rain was happening and the places that they were able to snowmobile, you know, decades ago, haven't had white Christmases in decades. Um, and I think that there's a really stark contrast that can be drawn in the Midwest that you alluded to, um, that I think a lot of people who even grew up in Gen Z millennial timeframes have seen shift already um, in the lack of white Christmases, the lack of snow and cross-country skiing is such a huge part of, of Northern Minnesota and Northern Wisconsin, but even those places aren't getting the snow they used to. So there's a huge issue there uh, that I think people are starting to come to fruition with, but I don't think it's selfish to, to, to wait until something like that happens to really understand it because people don't understand what they don't understand. And even if you're told something, you're never going to really embrace it until you personally are impacted in some way. And I think, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, that's starting to to happen more and more. Um, 
I guess one of the one of the questions that comes to mind off of what you were just talking about with why you're engaging comes to, to be you have very little time and you have very little uh, you know, ability to to really invest in, in an issue like climate change, especially traveling and doing all the things that you're doing for your sport. Why do you feel like your voice is so critical to this conversation or more so, why do you feel like this is worth spending that very, um, you know, like very precious time that you have uh, to invest? And what sort of impacts are you looking to have through your advocacy that you know make a, a significant difference? Because I, I know that, and I've seen firsthand that it has. Well, that's a great question because there's all sorts of causes that I'm involved in. As you talked about earlier, like I'm really involved with um, eating disorder awareness and prevention and getting young girls feeling confident in sport. And, you know, so there's a lot of things that are very important to me. Um, but I think the reason I try to spend so much of this time that I have on climate is because it affects everyone all over the world. And some people, you know, everyone has a voice, but some people may not be able to project that voice forward in terms of like lobbying Congress. And so when you right. have something like an Olympic gold medal, um, fair or not, it gets you in the door. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it really, it gets people's attention and it helps you have that meeting with that Senator, that representative and say, Hey, listen, you know, I really like this for not I really want this medal to not be the last one we ever bring home because we don't have any snow to drain, you know, like this, right. it helps you get that message across. So I think that's why I've been really feeling like, um, yeah, it's, it's me being responsible, um, using my voice to try to save this for future generations. Cause they're working so hard and, you know, my younger teammates, I want them to have a future in this sport. I want my grandkids to have the option of a future of cross country skiing. And so, um, but I also think, you know, like you said, one of the biggest outcomes is that people feel empowered to use their voice. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I spend a lot of time on is making people realize, Hey, you do have a part in this, like just voting mm -hmm. is really, really important because that's how we get large changes made. And even if you feel like, Oh, I'm not perfect. This won't really move the needle. Like it's still worth it to take those little steps. Like if you didn't recycle before, this would be a great time to start. Like if you buy a ton of single use plastics and, you know, if you buy a plastic water bottle every day, maybe it's time to invest in a reusable one, like little steps, as well as the the little steps that actually are big, like mm -hmm. voting or calling your senator and saying, hey, listen, like I'm, you know, I love deer hunting and tick season is now super long. I'm really concerned about these tick-borne illnesses that are now way more of a problem because climate change is changing the way we have longer summers. Like, you know, just whatever it is that clicks for you, um, making sure that you make those concerns known to the people who represent you and can actually help push forward these large scale changes. Well, and on that, you, you've been in a lot of rooms with leaders that have listened to your voice. And I would love for you to share a little bit of the, uh, observation that you have of the partisan divide on this issue and maybe some misunderstandings that you found from what we've talked about, some, some opportunities that may lie in, in this conversation that people might not realize. Can you talk a little bit about your advocacy behind the scenes and kind of what you've seen, some observations that people should know about? <clears throat> yeah, I think the biggest misunderstanding is one that I also shared, which was that 
nobody cares. This is never going to do anything. (laughs) You know, like it's super easy to get a little bit cynical and feel a little bit hopeless when it comes to climate change, because it's something that we've been working on for so long. And because, you know, 20 years ago, there was a ton of pushback. This isn't real or it's not actually our fault. We don't actually have to change it. Um, But what was so, so cool and uplifting about going to the Hill this spring was that pretty much everyone was like, yep, I agree. This is a problem. It is man-made and it's our job to fix it. And it didn't matter which side of the aisle they sat on, like everyone, you know, there was various degrees from representative to representative of how concerned they were or where it was on their agenda because they do have a huge to-do list. (laughs) And so what I found was that every time we go there and talk to them, it helps push climate to the top of that list. Every time their constituents write a letter or call in and say, hey, you know, I live in Montana. I'm really concerned about protecting our winners. I'm really concerned about our climate. I just want you to know that. Like it keeps pushing that to the top Mm -hmm. of their list because they're inundated every day with tons of requests, tons of asks. But one thing I did hear from Democrats and Republicans alike was we're listening. Like when you guys come and talk to us and share your concerns and, you know, talk about your climate story and why you're so passionate they're like, this sticks with us. Like we really are listening. It's not just like, yeah, yeah, cool. Can I hold your medal? Bye. You know, they really are Mm -hmm. um, concerned about this. And so to me, that made me um, feel really hopeful um, because I just felt like, all right, we are getting support from both sides. And you know, uh, not everyone always necessarily agrees on the single best course of action. That's going to take compromise, like everything else Mm -hmm. in life. But there is this unanimous agreement, basically, that, hey, we, we got to do something. It's important. So that was that was very, very cool. And that made me really excited to see. I love that you bring that up because, I mean, I even think back to our Arcteryx our, our event where we had multiple Republican members of Congress there, and they didn't even have a speaking opportunity. And for people who don't know a lot about the way members of Congress work, usually they don't go places where there's not a speaking opportunity or fundraising or some sort of meeting of strategy or whatever. They're not just going to show up to a bunch of events and listen to people. There's not a lot of people in the world who want to do that um, in general. And and they were there because they wanted to hear from Jesse. They wanted to hear from the uh, you know Olympians, and they wanted to hear from ACC. And I think it's it's a good example of how on this issue, I think more than others, elected officials are are listening a lot because they're trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. They they truly want to do something about it. They don't really know exactly how, and they don't they, they want to hear different perspectives. <clears throat> and you know, we we assume wrongly, like like Jesse, you you, you alluded to too, that they're, you know, dictated by all these external factors or that they're not at the table or that they're just too, too far behind and that we shouldn't even try when in reality, it's the exact opposite. And of course there are, you know, anomalies to that. And there are people who are, um, you know, problematic, but for the most part, it's, it's really a a huge, huge playing field that we haven't really even tried to touch yet. Uh, And, and Jesse's kind of helping, be a part of that, uh, that, that game. And, and it's super, super critical for more of us to, to lean into it. So from those behind the scenes meetings that you've had, where do you feel like the most hope and unhopeful experiences have come from? If you could just talk through what makes you a little bit unhopeful and then maybe expand a little bit on other things that have made you hopeful as well from your advocacy in the climate space and those lobbying experiences. 
Yeah, I guess. Um, I'm trying to remember. Well, also lobbying, if I can just cut in, lobbying is like a very dirty word for most people. And so I think it's really cool for people to hear about how you is just a activist or lobbying and that other people can do that. And so I, I just want to, for the listener's sake, you know, blatantly say that, you know, lobbying is not something that is just for, for government affairs, you know, employees at companies. This is for literally every single constituent and, and, you know, this unhopeful and hopeful approach that Jesse has is literally from her lobbying and using her voice for that. So sorry, Jesse, go ahead. I just want to add to that. No, I'm glad you did. Cause I think in my mind, yeah, some people, someone was like, oh, you went and lobbied. And I was like, yeah, I went and asked for something that I care about. Like, that's really know, what it is. That's, that's what it is. It's asking for something that you want, that you care about, that's important to you, right? Like, that's that's what I that's what I was doing there. So that was um, in itself very empowering because you know someone might say no, they might not agree with you, but if you don't ask, you for sure will not get what you want every single time. And so you know the worst you're going to get is no, sorry, I can't. Um, and the best you're going to get is yes. <laughs> And so that's, that's just a cool feeling. So, um, I don't know that I had that many, I'd say there were one or two unhelpful encounters where we simply weren't able to meet with the person we wanted to meet with. We instead had one of their staffers. Um, Mm -hmm. and it might've been someone who was super new, who was like, uh, you know, I got to tell you they're, we're swamped right now with other things. This is not something we're really going to get to. And I did appreciate their candor and their, their honesty in that. Um, but that, that was a little bit tough sometimes because you can't always, you know, if you're there for a day, you can't always meet with everyone and everyone that's kind of on your list of like, wow, we really want to, we really want to make sure we connect with these people. But on the plus side, it was very cool to meet with a lot of representatives and senators that were just like, yeah, I'm really pushing for this. Um, I'm, and not only I'm pushing for this, but I recognize we need to get everyone involved in this. So I'm not just going to push for my solution my way. I'm going to make sure, like, I'm, I'm open to reaching across the aisle and making sure that we have something that we agree on so we can get it done. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it was cool to hear that. That was, um, I can't remember who exactly were the ones who were saying that, but I do remember feeling like, okay, there's this really cool acknowledgement that, you know, there's, uh, you know, of course going to be some compromise, but I think we can make this happen. So, and then some of the things that, you know, I, I left feeling really excited about, um, or I don't know if excited is the right word, but I was able to share a lot of images in my talk that I think really stick with people, which is when we're racing on the World Cup and it's a ribbon of dirty man-made snow in a green field in Alpine Mountains in February. That's such a starkly wrong scene. Like nothing mm-hmm. about that looks right, you know? And so I got to share yeah, this story. Yeah, like how in in La Clouseau, France, like the villagers were all chipping chunks of ice from the frozen lake, hauling it up, crushing it up, spraying it out in the field and dumping like parking lot man-made snow on there in order to save this race and make it happen. And that's how they did it. And that was a venue that should have had natural snow in like late January or February, whenever we were there. And so those images kind of really stick with you. And um, I was glad that I was able to share those because I think it, it helps conjure up like this is the future of our sport if we can't turn this around. Well, and, you know, whether intentionally or unintentionally, what was really powerful about doing that, and I know you did that at the Arcteryx event too, was the stories are so powerful in, in advocacy, um, especially when people can visualize it 
and or potentially physically see it like they were able to do with your presentation because it it does paint this picture and and you know we're human beings like we love stories like we don't care about the data of climate science as much as we do about the snow being all fake in the middle of the mountains uh because there's not snow there <laughs> like that is a way more compelling argument than well the celsius you know temperature has gone up by 0.2 degrees and on average and like it's just like our brains would rather hang on to these stories and that's what makes your advocacy also so powerful is that it's a real life example it's not about science or like the the depths of science it's obviously on behalf of science but it's about the way that you live your life and, the, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier where it's a personal connection to the issue that drives change and that's what's going to drive the change in general people aren't going to push for action if they don't have a personal stake in it or if they don't have some sort of uh you know ability to connect the issue with real life and that's something that you really have done a good job of in your advocacy and i would just urge others to do as well that this isn't you know as simple as trying to convince people that the science is important it's it's about our lives and it's about protecting our lives for future generations and protecting our planet for future generations and there are so many amazing and horrifying <laughs> stories um within that so Switching gears for a second, one of the things that I really liked about that presentation, too, is your American pride that you weaved into it. I think there's a lot of people who say, especially on the right, and and sometimes rightfully so, that, you know, climate activism is is really an anti-American thing, and it's really about kind of shaming and blaming America, and people who oftentimes advocate for climate change are people, or climate change reform are the people who, you know, don't value the, you know, incredible opportunities that we have in the United States, and so on and so forth. But you weave your pride for America and your, you know, leadership on the world stage as an American into your climate activism. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important to you? Yeah, because um, I do think you know just just because something is hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, right? And that's something I talked about a lot at the Arcteryx event because I talked about um, the last race I did at the last Olympics where I raced after having food poisoning. It was the hardest race I've ever done in my whole life. There were a lot of reasons why I maybe shouldn't have even bothered to show up on the start line because mm. it's like, how can you possibly win a medal like this? And I think we tend to think about climate sometimes in that same fashion where it's like, why should we even bother? We're too far behind. We can't pull this off. You know, this is, this is way too hard. Um, and yeah. I, it, it makes people not even want to try. And I think mm -hmm. that's not a good enough excuse in my book. <laughs> like just because something's hard does not mean it is not worthy of all your time and attention and effort. So um, I think it is an opportunity to say, hey, if you are proud of your country, be a leader. You know, it's easy to point fingers and be like, oh, this country and that country and they're not doing enough. So what? be the one who does enough. Like that's how you change a team culture is you be the one who shows leadership. You be the one who gets the team on track, be the one who is the guiding light for other people. And if you do the right thing, other people will admire that and they will want to do the right thing. So I think instead of, you know, pointing fingers or waiting someone else for someone else to lead the charge, I think this is honestly what I see is an opportunity for the U.S. to, you know, turn this into a source of pride. Hey, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to we're going to double down on this. We're going to commit. We're going to do everything we can to change this. Um, and I do think other people will follow when they see, you know, and admire 
um, somebody doing the right thing. So yeah, I guess that's just how I, I view it that. instead of, instead of like, Oh, why bother? <laughs> Well, I love that. And, and, you know, with the disclaimer that, yes, none of the progress that we make in the United States will matter without China or India or other countries also getting on board. That is true. But at the same time, the crux of that argument for people who say that we shouldn't do anything because of it are basically saying that we should be doing what China and India are doing. And that's, I mean, I think anyone, no matter who they are, can say that that's a really horrible way to look at the world. I mean, you're basically saying we are we aren't going to do anything because a developing country is developing and a communist leader communist led country who is also developing isn't doing anything and so we're just going to be like them and throughout history if we ever tried to like say that argument towards other issues it would sound really bad <laughs> to say oh, that yeah. <laughs> you know we sh- we shouldn't do something because other countries aren't doing it too and unlike those issues, this is one that our leadership can actually spread to those countries because the reason why developing countries aren't engaging in climate action yet isn't because they hate the environment. It's, it's they because they're put, right they can't right now and they're putting profits over the environment and their own economic growth over the environment. That is totally acceptable because that is how all of us live our lives, which is why we need to make climate fighting climate change a profitable thing, something that is affordable, something that is expands our economy. And we're getting close to that. And the more that America can lead on that, the more that we can allow the countries like China and India to see that it actually can be cheaper to be pro-environment. It actually can be you know, more affordable and more reliable to be pro-environment. And I'm not saying that we have it all figured out yet, because if we did, they would be embracing that. But we're getting pretty close and if America is the one leading it, that reaps a lot of benefits for us. You can you can model that um, that you will be rewarded for exactly. <laughs> being pro climate, and I think that's that's very very cool. That's a that's a huge incentive. I think it is. And China, you know, for all the wrongs that they have on this issue and and lots of other issues, they they know that there is an economic opportunity in fighting climate change, which is why they're investing in so many of these things for the long term. And America sitting back and saying, well, other countries aren't doing it, so we're not going to do it, is allowing a country like China to actually get ahead of us in in a lot of ways economically on this issue so unnecessarily. And so we have a leadership role from a moral standpoint, an economic standpoint, and so on and so forth that we could be embracing. And and I love how you weave that American pride into it. So, um, yeah, I think that's just a really critical point for people to understand. Absolutely. I mean, I... <laughs> I always try to make everything into a sports analogy, but it'd be like, oh, this other person isn't training very hard. I guess I won't train very hard either. I, mm. I hope I win, though. <laughs> I hope That's I win the real, race. That is, that is exactly <laughs> what that is. Yeah, it's like, well, who cares what they're doing? I'm going to go out there and train as hard as I can because when it shows up, when I show up on the start line, I want to know I did everything I could. I might win the race. I might not, but at least I sleep well at night knowing that I really, truly tried everything I could. And yes. that's that's what it is about for me when I race. And that's kind of the same attitude I take towards climate. Like, you know, whether we fix this in time or not, I want to be able to look my children in the eye and say, yeah, I did do everything I could. Um, and there's only one way I'm going to be able to look them in the eye and say that. So, exactly um, right. So speaking of that, I think you've got a really good lay of the land of of where both sides are at with 
this issue and and where they see this issue for future generations if you could say I, you can answer this two ways uh you could if you could say one thing to both parties um either separately so one thing to democrats or one thing to republicans as well or one thing to them together what would it be and i'd almost prefer one thing to republicans and democrats because i think they might be different things uh, about uh, what that's funny because i was actually just thinking i would say the same thing to everyone and it would be you're on the same team because you all need to come together and fix this for the entire world in order to benefit uh from this and be remembered for doing the right thing Mm. that's what i would tell him like you will be remembered one way or the other be remembered for doing the right thing yeah that's incredibly powerful and this is your choice this is your chance you know so um that's what i would say to both sides i love that and actually one, one final question before we get into some rapid fire fun questions a lot of young people who believe in what you just said about getting on the same team and, and having elected officials understand that lots of people believe that especially young people but they don't know where to start with their activism. And you've talked a little bit about, you know, the need to, you know, use a voice for lobbying and, and, you know, doing some of those smaller steps. But if someone's stuck and they're saying, I don't know what to do, but I want to do something about it, where can they go to start taking some of those steps outside of the things that you've talked about already? Right. Well, I'm sure the AAC has a great website that yes. can help direct people. Similarly with Protect Our Winners, uh, you can join POW and then, you know, when it comes time to vote, you can help um, by writing letters to your representatives. You can call, they help lay it out. So it's pretty easy because it can be really intimidating, especially like, I remember the first time I called my Senator, I was just like shaking and sweating. I was like, Oh my God. And then I was like, (laughs) wait, but they're just a human just like me. And they also have opinions just like me. And they might actually agree with me and they might care about the things that I care about. So let's just see. Um, but I think they really help you, uh, break it down and make it a little bit less intimidating and a little easier to do. Um, and so I would say, start there, you know, find an organization that you trust and respect, um, like the two I just named and then, you know, get in touch with them and, and let them help guide you on how to get into that world of advocacy. I love that. Yeah, I think there's so many organizations out there, obviously, POW, ACC, there's so many that you could join that are that, that give you those tools. I mean, we provide and POW does this too, where, you know, we basically send out action alerts where people can use, whether it's social media, email, phone, meetings in person, um, their voice to advocate for something. And I know POW and ACC are working on one of those together right now, a partnership on that. And I think, if, if you can tap into a network that pr- basically provides these things and then, you know, wait for the opportunities to come or, or spearhead some, and those organizations will probably, you know, embrace that, uh, the opportunities are out there, but it, you know, joining an existing entity definitely helps. Um, and I think, you know, whether it's ours, which is the climate commitment, that's our kind of climate campaign or it's a specific issue that you care about within climate change, um, more, more nuanced. I think elected officials need to hear their voice. And I, and I've heard from elected officials that if they just heard from two or three more people in their district about an issue, they would have voted a different way. And it speaks to the power of, yes, it's nerve wracking to call up your legislator. Uh, but if you can do it alongside an organization that is already doing that, and you're alongside a team of people, um, it can make that a little less intimidating. So I completely agree. Anything else you want to add on that before we go into rapid fire? 
I guess I would say also, um, A, vote. That's the biggest. And then B, sometimes you can take it into your own hands if you feel um, really inspired to do so. For example, there's a student-led fundraiser for Protect Our Winners. It's a ski race called Ski for Snow in Minneapolis. This is a couple high school kids who are like, hey, we really care about climate. We're actually too young to vote, um, but we really want to raise money to help this organization out because we really believe in it. And they led the charge on this entire event to raise money. How cool is that? I mean, they're like 16 years old. And so I think, like, I think about that when I think, oh man, I'm kind of nervous, kind of like intimidated about calling this person or writing this letter or whatever. And then I'm like, oh wow, 16 year olds organized an entire fundraising event. That's okay. All right. I can do this. <laughs> it kind of, kind of helps give you that courage and remember that like you, you can take things into your own hands too, if you feel inspired. Yeah. I mean, everyone has the power to do those things, but actually young people have, I think the most opportunity. And a lot of young people think, Oh, I got to do, I got to wait my, uh, wait for my time. I got to do my time. I got to put it in this time. I have to work my way up before I'm even allowed to do even something like call a legislator or whatever. But the reality is that everyone wants young voices right now. Like the vast majority of people will actually elevate people and help them put together a fundraiser as 16 year olds because they want to empower the next generation. And of course, there are people who don't want that, but the vast majority of adults, you know, older adults do. And that is like a mass opportunity for young people to take advantage of those resources that people want to put into younger generations. I completely agree. All right. Well, we're short on time, so I want to get to the rapid fire questions and I want to kind of intro them by saying a few, we've talked about this before, but about a decade ago, you and my uncle uh, rode in a car together in Jackson uh, or in Idaho or somewhere out West um, where there's a cross country ski training thing. We both know about the amazing trails up in Northern Minnesota and Wisconsin. And there's a lot that connects us there. And, and my family, my cousins and aunts and uncle are super invested in that too. And I think it's a really fascinating question to start the rapid fire by asking, what is your favorite place to cross country ski in the United States and internationally? Okay. Um, in the U S I'd have to say the trails where I learned how to ski simply because so many great memories playing tag on skis, playing soccer on skis, like skiing across the lake and then skiing to a bonfire. Like that's, you can't beat those memories. Um, so that was the Willow river, um, ski club at the Willow river state park, which is actually in Wisconsin. It's right over the border from Minnesota. That's why Wisconsin's just slightly better than Minnesota. (laughs) Nice try. <laughs> and um, internationally, I would say Sizerholm, Italy is my favorite place in the whole world. You've got these jagged peaks of the Dolomites. There's hundreds of kilometers of ski trails. It's this huge alpine meadow just dotted with all these cute little wooden cabins. You can like ski to the cabin and have a picnic. It's so freaking cute. It's awesome. That is awesome. I, uh, I'm envisioning it right now and I, and I'm going to need to go cause that sounds incredible. All right. When you're out there in those beautiful mountains or those beautiful forests, what is your favorite trail food? Oh, um, we might've talked about this, but I'm a big baker and I, I get really sick of sport bars because there's only so many energy bars you can eat in your life <laughs> and they all sort of taste the same, even though yep. they're really great. So I really like baking like banana chocolate chip muffins or something and then bringing my little, I have these little reusable muffin cups that keep them very nice. And so I bring those in my, in my pockets. <laughs> 
It's those small things, but it's also those delicious things that uh, I'm sure your team and your teammates get to benefit from as well. Uh, oh, yes, they do. <laughs> It's worth keeping around for the trail food that is better than the energy bars. Uh, and you'll you you could be you could be past your prime in forty years, and you'd still be out there because they want those banana uh, those banana chocolate chip you know desserts on the trail. So that's awesome. Um, all right, most undervalued U.S. state for outdoor activities. Oh, undervalued. Oh man, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. I think people forget that New York isn't just New York City, mm. that there's actually some incredible running and hiking in the Adirondacks. It's a huge, huge state. And I think I think of New York and I think like, oh, the big city, it's a bunch of pavement. But actually, some of the running out there is the most beautiful ever. And it's absolutely gorgeous. And the leaf peeping out there in the fall is top notch. That is very true. Upstate New York is is incredible, and the Finger Lakes, and there's just so much beauty up there that people don't realize, and you're totally right. I mean, New York City can be uh, a tough place to be at times if you love the environment, uh, but the the state itself gets a bad rap because of that unnecessarily. I love, love that answer. Yeah, because I would say Minnesota, but I feel like people know about the Boundary Waters um, yeah. right now, and so I feel like people know, like, oh, there's some really, really epic like canoe trip opportunities up there. So um, I don't know that it is undervalued. Yeah. Well, I think, it, I think, I still think it might be, but less than it used to be. And I think increasingly so it's being more valued on that side of things. Okay. Well, speaking of Minnesota, the last question is a little bit controversial and it might, you know, cause some, cause some unfortunate debate, but what are the ranking of your top four Midwest states? <laughs> this is definitely going to cause a debate. Okay, well, obviously Minnesota, because I'm a huge homer. Um, and then probably Wisconsin, because that's Woo. where I learned to ski. <sighs> then I'm going to say Michigan. Um, big fan of the Great Lakes situation. Yes. <sighs> the fourth one's kind of tough for me. <laughs> It does the be- natural beauty does it does stem a lot from those three states in the Midwest. So that fourth one, where is it? I'm going to say South Dakota. Love yep. that. Yep, that's, that's that's that is a beautiful state. It is a beautiful state. I was going to say you can fight me on this, but <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I I disagree with the Wisconsin Minnesota ranking, but other than that, I I'm I'm in the same boat on that. And I think South Dakota is actually undervalued in a lot of ways for its beauty, um, but it's starting to become more valued too with the Badlands and the Custer State Park and a lot of great beauty out there. So, all right, well that's all we have time for today. I know you've got to run, and we're at time anyways. But I really appreciate your voice in this conversation and your willingness to come on my podcast, especially as one of the earliest episodes. And you know, there's there's so much hope and, and optimism that I get when I talk to you, and and there's so much hope and optimism that I I know listeners and your followers and the people who know you have with your leadership on this. And so, I mean, I'm sure you hear it all the time, but. The, the the best thing you could do is keep doing this because it's incredibly half helpful and impactful. And I know the, the politicians and just everyday voters really, really appreciate your activism. So thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me and right back at you. This is really cool to talk about. So I really appreciate you doing this podcast. This is really cool. Well, thanks. And we'll have to have you on again. And, and, but for now, we'll let you go back into your treehouse uh, in the middle of the woods or wherever you're headed to. And, uh, and we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thanks, Benji. Thanks. 
And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.